trucks yeah, going around Boston. Yeah, there's pasta and produce. We always, yes. we always appreciate those. Yeah. And then the, the, what is it, a fishing company? Oh, Costa, Costa Del, Mar. Del Mar, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's Costa Del Mar. Costa Del Mar. Which yeah. is the... The Italian pronunciation. Yeah. Probably Portuguese, Coast of too. the sea, I guess. Yes. Which is what that literally means. Yeah. Or, which is or, what a coast or, is. Or, you know what, actually, it probably means seaside. Yeah. That would, would make say, a lot more sense, <laughs> That would yeah. probably be the way to, uh, uh, to translate that. Yeah. Speaking of Costa, though, I think they are no longer the sponsors of, but used to be the sponsors of, the Dublin Literary Award. Oh, really? It's the most expensive literary award for a single novel in history. Oh, wow. And it was given to an American named Emily, uh, I'm going to butcher her last name. Um, I think it's Rushkovitz or something like that. Oh. Um, she wrote a novel called Idaho. That's pretty awesome. Uh, How expensive was the award? 100,000 euro. That's pretty. Oh that's my God, her great. last name is Emily Rushkovich. There you go, Rushkovich. <laughs> I didn't butcher it at all. Nice. Uh, she won the, she won the, the, the novel, the award for, for, Idaho. Very cool. Yeah, I listened to a segment at work when I was killing time, and it was a uh, an extended meditation on the way a bloodhound smells. Oh. And I believe it was uh, about like like a metaphor for something, probably. Right. right. <laughs> because to just be about that yeah. is right, pretty yeah, odd. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's good on its own merits, but yeah, I mean, I was interested. I mean, right. I didn't, I'm I didn't, sure it was compelling. I didn't know that a bloodhound's ears touched the ground so that it could sense the soul of the universe. But I mean, like, I get, I would believe yeah. that if you told me. <laughs> That's what people are doing in Idaho, right? Like, I guess in in the remote north, east, or west corner of it, or wherever she's from. Anyway, congratulations to her. That's too much money for a book prize, though. That money should have been used for something else, like yeah, revolutionary activity, but whatever. <laughs> um, but I don't think the coffee company sponsors it anymore. But I could be thinking uh, of a totally different Dublin literary prize that Costa still does sponsor. Right. But anyway, most expensive one in the world. 100,000 euros she got for that. You gotta write that one down, Jay. She beat George Saunders for it. Oh, really? And a million other people as well, yeah. That's pretty impressive. I and mean, was that, without was, or with him. But. Was that her first published? Or? Oh, yeah. Debut really? novel. Wow. Yeah. Debut. Now we gotta read it. Yeah, I know. That's a killer. But you know what? She went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, so Fix was in. Makes sense. Yeah. It all comes together. They're always just giving those people that graduate from that program lots of praise when probably don't deserve it. Mm. But who knows? Who knows? Later on in the program, we're going to be speaking with Jacob Kramer. He's a local writer in Somerville and community organizer and activist. Uh, he writes kids' books. He's the author of books such as um, Noodlefint and More Bats and uh, a couple of uh, collection of poems you can read online called Critterverse. We'll be speaking with him later on about uh, kids' books, propaganda, art, uh, and, and why, why write kids' books with political messages about compassion, humanity, and love and kindness and all that kind of stuff. But let's get back to the fact that there's a stranger in here. A stranger yes. to me. Yes. <laughs> Mike Costa, who are you and what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. He's asking himself the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but that is my job. No, so. yeah. Um, so more than just to support Deanna and like... I, I like like the show. I listen to the show. Oh, and, thank um, you. That's amazing. Yeah, is that nice of him? <laughs> great to meet a fan. It's, cool. it's good to hear, like... And you're a writer, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. What is it that you write? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I write... I, I like to write, like, fiction, like, short stories, novel stuff. Um, uh, currently, uh, I've finished a couple of short stories. Um, 
And um, so I just recently graduated from uh, LaSalle College. It's like it's in Newton, uh, not too far away. But um, and I just got accepted into uh, Emerson, so I'll be like doing the writing program there. So I'm just uh, I'm kind of just trying to like get the ropes here, you know, sure. like trial and error, basically. Yeah. You have also written a piece for the Arts Fuse. Uh, I did too, though. Yeah. Uh, so the first one was uh, had to do with uh, PAX uh, East 2019. So that's the Penny Arcade Expo. Uh, happens every year in Boston. It's a, it's a video game convention. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you remember what year is this? Like the sixth one or something like that? Uh, it's, been, it's, been, it's been around for longer than that? Yeah. Oh, okay. I believe so. Okay, here we go. I had the other one up. You re- you reviewed a video game. Yeah, that's yeah, the most recent that's the most one recent. that okay. came out yes- yeah. yesterday. Today? So what's uh what's PAX East? Uh, so yeah, it's 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 an event where a lot of like gamers of all types just go there, and it's mm, it depends on like people go for different reasons. Mm-hmm. There's uh, announcements there. Obviously, is not uh, not as much as like E3, which is like the big one uh, for video games. If you study like video games at all it's like cosplay is like a big thing Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. there's also like every type of there's also like not even related to video games there's uh card tournaments board game tabletop tournaments there so it's it's more it's the indie ones yeah so yeah that's that's another thing is there's like stark difference because you have the big triple a titles they have these like big booths on the floor where there's Mm -hmm. like you know they obviously just threw like you know hundred thousand dollars at whatever it was and there's nobody nobody there that represents the game it's just like some person they hired and and they have like these big like expensive sculptures and like like these are like your your halo type yeah it's really really big stuff like the big one for sony this year was days gone it's like this uh zombie zombie's still relevant somehow but it's like this (laughs) big zombie game with like a story that um and at, at the event, they had, like, two paid actors, like, zombies, that were there all day. They like, were in, like, just, a cage. Yeah, they were, like, in a cage, and they were just, like, you know, like, Being pawing zombies. at people and, like, moaning all day. Probably getting, like, $9 an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Most likely, yeah. <laughs> people are taking pictures with them, and yeah. it, it, that, that felt a little odd. But, mm. and yeah, they have these big wax sculptures, and th- so that's, like, the big games. And then there's a lot of people that go for, like, the triple, or the, sorry, the indie titles which mm-hmm. are you know they're you know it's like the three people on the floor made the game and they like really want yeah, you to like play the game right kickstarter or yeah. what what have you and they want you to play the game and they'll like sit over your shoulder and explain how it works and a lot of people like that like personal note mm-hmm. better and that they take a lot of feedback too right yeah yeah in, in the realm of that there's usually it's just like you know a new shooter like um you know bird's eye or on the other end, you'll have, like, the couch co-op stuff, which a lot of people like, which is, like, they'll have four chairs set up, and you just kind of jump in, and they're like, all right, we're just going to throw you in this crazy, like, arena brawl, and you have no idea, like, how it works, but they'll explain it as you go, and you just kind of have fun with strangers. And... So what's um what's the thing that you want your readers of your piece here about PAX to sort of take away about this year's? So for mine, it was like, I was kind of like re-exploring because like I changed a lot since the first time I went to PAX and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm married now. And 
it just and also like i also wanted to put in perspective of like all of the the like school shootings and stuff that's been happening and shootings in the youtube headquarters and so all this stuff i kind of like i felt differently about it i think i mentioned in the article like when i'm walking in there's like countless people with like full riot gear and like and guns but they're just like cosplaying mm-hmm. and like which has always made me nervous and the fact that it finally started to make me well it just it just seemed a little odd like in the wake of like i it was the the most recent oh it was the um the new zealand shooting yeah. mm. that was like, like days before that yeah, like think. a week maybe yeah. or yeah around then and it just felt weird that like we're like glorifying this it, like i understand it's video games and it's like right it was weird just to like because like the other thing that changed was the security. There was like no security the first time we went there, and then you know it's been a few years now. It's three was, years ago. There was no security. There was like nothing. Yeah. There was there was even just, after the Boston Marathon bombing. Oh yeah, because it was, was definitely after that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, it was like interesting. They just had people checking bags. I think, maybe. Yeah, yeah. There's they weren't police officers checking bags or security guards or anything. They mm-hmm. were just they were just people hired from the arena. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they would well, they don't want to have to pay the overtime for the cops. Yeah, right, right. it's quite expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess they do now because it's they transformed a bit. To. And there's metal detectors, and and uh, they have to once you go through, they like swipe at you with the you know the scanner, the magic and, wand. Yeah. You know, yeah. And there's there was like drug dogs, like four of them. Like it was it was People very different. Then there's yeah. like a security booth as he walked in, so it was like okay. <laughs> yeah. Weird, but. It's yeah, it definitely changed, and that kind of like I think it has also has to do with the fact that video games and like that event specifically have gotten more and more popular. So there's more yeah. people they coming to these events. Yeah, they added. It used to be two days. two days, so true. and then it when I went, it was three days, and they moved it up to four days. Yeah, it was very different. Like the like the chaperones and staff, whatever you may call them, they were like kind of yelling at people because like they have to control like mobs of people mm. now instead of just like a comfortable amount of people it it was just it was kind of yeah. like a retrospective of like how it's changed i mean yeah i guess they're so much bigger now video games mean so much more in terms of mm-hmm. culture and economy and even the arts i mean we're covering video games in an arts magazine you know so right. so clearly there's there's an interpretation of the aesthetics of the video games we have and you can probably yeah, draw your major distinctions between like the indie games and you know the big AAA titles as you call them and stuff. You know mm-hmm. the 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 ones in which it's a totally immersive universe. Yeah. You know where it almost replaces your real existence. And they're becoming so you know? lifelike too. With yeah. The, the graphics oh, and VR experience. and all that yeah, kind of VR stuff too. too yeah. yeah. Um, and then you know you see the. I don't know if it's a translation for the video game into real life when people do cosplay and stuff like that because obviously it's it's pageantry, it's costumes. Right. You know, it's you know people have been dressing up in costumes forever. Right. You know, for for symbolic reasons, for cultural reasons. You know, you go to Mardi Gras, you know, and mm-hmm. people dress up in all sorts of different characters and all that kind of stuff. I guess in a way, it's you know some sort of cosplay. It's taking from an evolving mythology about history and culture and place uh, and identity, and then you know doing it real big yeah. you know one day out of the year or two yeah. days out of the year or for however long you know these these it's events happen like but like you say you know when it's uh when the aesthetic is one of you know violence or romanticizing you know the the figure of the person who's able to do violence without mm-hmm. any sort of consequences to your actions because right. i mean like people 
who are serious gamers don't believe that there's no consequences to their actions yeah, when they're in when absolutely. they're gaming right, because yeah. they think it's like real life. They're like, oh my god, you unplugged my Xbox while yeah. I was about to break, <laughs> yeah. break the high score or whatever. Yeah. I don't think they do high scores anymore. But you know, games, but, it depends on yeah. yeah. If it's like a a cell phone game, right. you're looking yeah. for a high score. Um, and it means as much to them as you know uh, hitting a home run or some other useless activity. Well, that's like that's the other thing is it's the esports like yeah has just blown up like oh yeah now it, it's pretty much going to become its own like legitimate sport. Well, yeah, it's it's I mean it already yeah. is. Yeah. Well, I mean like gaming is a sport. Yeah. you know people do it as a sport. You know yeah. it's it's just interesting to see now because it's like on ESPN and yeah, it's I was like, gonna say, oh you I can watch it on ESPN yeah like by the cities it's going to become a mm. sport like there's going to be like well the, maybe there is there a Boston team I know there's New York uh, there's for Philly. Overwatch yeah for Overwatch for there's quite a few it's going to become its own franchise I guess is what I'm very interesting like is this one of those things that you think is going to stick see like so I remember watching like I remember ESPN had like a paintball league. <laughs> Did they really? I remember that I used to watch Scrabble, so ter- the World Scrabble Championships yeah. on That's ESPN too when I was younger. You know, so like right. they've had lots of silly shit on, right. on ESPN before. Do you think gaming's gonna stick around? You I know, is it is it that it, is it that significant in the culture? I, I think, think there's gotta be. be yeah, like I I I think there's gotta be more games because. That's true. It's, if you're, Overwatch is one specific Overwatch is gamer. like the big, the biggest one that's tried to, uh, like, to well, they're they're try, they've tried to like kind of emulate like how leagues like do things. Like they 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 got sued drafts and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they do. They yeah, got, they have sportscasters yeah. of their own, and they got sued by um, the MLB because oh, they really? they like well, their logo of, was pretty similar. Yeah. But like it looked a lot like a yeah an MLB logo. I think that's kind of like their angle is like we're gonna try to like they're legitimizing themselves yeah. or yeah. attempting to legitimize themselves yeah. in the uh, in the views of sportsmen. And I guess like the internet and fantasy sports has really sort of changed what can become entertainment oh, too. Right. Sure. We're sort of getting off of the arts aspect of this. Yeah. <laughs> I want I want to I want to draw it back to yeah. the to 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 the aesthetics of things you know in in, in a yeah. minute, but. Um, but that's that's really interesting though that like it's can also be like discussed as like an art but also sport like, yeah that's, yeah, that that's odd. yeah. and like usually we think about like talking about a sport in terms of artistically you know right so like one of my favorite quotes of all time is when after uh the giants beat um the yankees in that one game playoff and the guy shouts the giants won the pennant the giants won the pennant the day after the famous sports writer whose name i can't remember right now says um fiction's dead you know like <laughs> basically like we've killed the idea of the impossible because the impossible has already happened <laughs> right. you know and so like you can blend all these sort of aesthetic and artistic yeah. metaphors and meaning into how it happens or like the way you describe somebody's swing and like right. there's some physicality oh, yeah. to it you know that right. sort of the like sportscasters yeah. do get very or like uh some of the um some of the best documentaries or films that I've seen, just straight out fl- films, are uh, like, for instance, the Tokyo Olympics, uh, the Tokyo Olympiad film mm-hmm. from 1968 or whatever it was. And it's just pure art, you know, where you're basically like watching, uh, you know, Greek statues, you know, in oh. action or something like that, you yeah. know, which is, which is, you know, so it's, it's, it, it translates into art. And then now we have this thing where it was a subculture outcast you know just mm-hmm. kids diversion mm-hmm. you know like yeah. penny arcade stuff uh and they had tournaments back in the day uh with like pac-man and 
Donkey right. Kong and stuff like that, you know, where, where they turned it into a competition. It was more like a sort of... It's very localized. It could be localized or it could be gimmicky, Yeah. you know, uh, but now it's it's so serious and, and people take the way a game looks so importantly now yeah. too, you know, where it's not just about the objective. It's like if I don't believe that I'm this person, yeah. if I don't if have not, this immersive, immersive yeah. experience, then I'm getting gypped because you know uh, I paid sixty dollars for this game or yeah, whatever it was, the or yeah, are higher with how expensive. Or like <laughs> you know, or if the the skin on your uh, uh, Fortnite character is not what you wanted it to be, then you're gonna be pissed about the however many dollars those cost. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah, and that's, that's actually that's a good segue into your other article. The one that came out today. Well, I actually didn't get to talk about microtransactions that much. Um, uh, well, microtransactions. This is the this is the the, the new economic model, right? Yeah. Where it's, it's like crazy. I give you I give you the game for free, but you have to make in-game purchases yeah. over and over. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like buying a book, but you have to buy. <laughs> you have to give know, me a dollar to get the end. <laughs> to, get the, to get the next yeah. page or whatever, yeah. you yeah. know, which is which it's is uh, which is a nuts economic model, and like I don't know. Uh, I can't think of anything coming to mind right now of like another art form other than like maybe like a book series or right. you know um paying into a museum and having to pay extra for a certain exhibit or something yeah. like that you know yeah. like uh, what's what's the artistic and and also like it's it's fine. a super consumer experience but it's oh, also yeah. modeled on gambling addiction right yes yeah. which is another <laughs> well, that, serious so, issue. Yeah. which which we we call gaming you know like the literal like, legal term of art is gaming uh, and so it's so to me the 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 invention of the internet established rules around gaming as in gambling casino rules and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which is essentially one giant in app per- purchase after another, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the prevalence of fantasy sports, which has taken away the actual need to be involved in the sport <laughs> yeah. and actually just make a game in and of itself about watching the numbers and like the however much money you can win and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, what we now have, I think, gaming will fit very nicely into our postmodern dystopia, mm-hmm. because <laughs> because uh, you will have all these, you know, uh, exploited artists, you know, graphic mm-hmm. artists, you know, making these beautiful universes, these writers yeah, the developing writers these narratives and these story arcs and these characters and all this kind of stuff, and they're just completely uh, uh, desaturated of their meaning and content, and then completely monetized. Yeah, you know, and so. What am I saying? Video games are bad? <laughs> <I don't, laughs> the well, way that they're going is not good. Well, I think yeah. it's. I think it all depends on who's making the game. Hmm. Most true. of these are big companies that bottom line is profit. I have seen microtransaction like done well a couple of times. Um, I only say that because there's one like I. I think in general it's come full circle because if you think of like arcade games that started out with you have to pay per life, right? Yeah, which is, that's true. Which was, you know, it, it can add up if you have sure. a put another, Pac-Man addiction. Put another quarter in or else you're dead. Yeah. Right, right. I that's, mean, yeah, it's really back to the, the original thing. model, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. like, you've got these people that are probably very nostalgic for the arcade games and stuff. Mm-hmm. But you can play the arcade games on your computer for yeah, free you all you want. Yeah. You know, like, you have infinite lives then. Yeah. One of the, one of the like, successful models, like, about that that I've seen is, like, it's this game called Let It Die. It's a mm-hmm. uh, Japanese developer. It's really interesting because you pay, you don't have to pay, like you don't have to pay for microtransactions, but if you choose to, you you buy lives, basically. 
if you die in that game, it's really hard. It's kind of like I don't know if you've heard of like the Dark Souls games or nope. It's it's like a big thing in the game community about like these difficult games that you can't like you die and you have to start all unbeatable the way games right, almost right. yeah. And this one is kind of like dialed it back to like you want to pay for lives. You can do that, or you can just kind of put more time into this game yeah and stick it out. Which it's I think it's like. That's not the only thing. They make other games and they don't have microtransactions, but that was like their one big thing. And I think it's important to note that they're a very small studio. That's hmm. probably the bulk of their income comes from that. And like I've played the game, it's really fun. And I think you can get through it without like paying for anything. But, but it's not necessarily cash grab, like you need to but pay to get At the same time, I also think like with the legislation they're pushing to like ban. Get, like microtransactions in video games, which is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I Who do in think America or Japan? Or? America, yeah. So they want to ban in-app purchases or in-game purchases for everything, even for phones too. Really? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. So they're, because they're, kids are bankrupting their yeah. parents. Yeah, it's, that's a huge it's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> but you'd think that they wouldn't want to stop that because, like, I bet you it's a kid who like got a credit card number from their parents. Yeah, their you know? iTunes are just yeah, signed in. Right, right, yeah. right. And then like the parents go into credit card debt, and then they are you know forever chained to the system. Right, I was yeah. gonna say it keeps the cycle going. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I think like that's not like I, I it's not the core model of a lot of games, but just a. a Large, large amount. I would say, like... The, well, Fortnite is, like, for, the biggest one, yeah. right? Well, that's, that's its own discussion, I yeah. think. Um, the common thing now, if it's, like, a single-player campaign that's just offline, you know, it's just a story and you play through it, or RPG or something, mm-hmm. The what they'll do now is they just will say, you can get this stuff in the game if you want. You can go here, do this mission, or you can pay for it. Um, would you feel pissed though if you paid like sixty dollars for some game and then like mm-hmm. they said you need to buy like the second half of it? Yeah, you know? yeah like, well, that's, that's wouldn't a... you wouldn't you go play the free one and then decide mm-hmm. maybe later on if you want to spend a few bucks on like uh, yeah. extras yeah, or whatever? Yeah, that's you know? basically yeah. all it is. The other thing is is these games a lot of them are coming out just unfinished. Um, hmm. Like they'll have. Um, it's called uh, what is it? Early, early release, early. Uh... Well, weren't you were telling me something about how there's um, early two schools of thought those. about buying on release versus yes. uh, pre-ordering. Pre-ordering, too. pre-ordering has become kind of crazy now too because it's guaranteed money for them. So they basically can say, "Oh, we already have," you know, a million purchases so far. They're not going to pull out. What we can do is. We'll just save development for later, and then we'll offer that as DLC that they have to buy later. Wow, this so is they, content. This so they, is they this don't is, finish the game. Very economical. This is some neoliberal stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is seriously neoliberal stuff. Yeah. It's serious. It's, yeah. Serious well, problem. The, Where's, the game wow. you you just reviewed, right? Didn't they do something like that? Rage two. Rage two. They have like you could. You bought something that wasn't like this, well, this crazy special edition, but you got extra stuff for the extra. So I I don't thing. pre-order a lot. I pre-order if I haven't if this game like the one I'm talking about, Rage Two, the the most recent article. That game I've been waiting for it to release since 2011. Like they they like just had this abrupt terrible. It's like infamous in the games uh, like Sphere as like having the worst ending like of all time because mm. it was like there was no boss battle it was like 
fight ten enemies and the mm, game ends and you're just like scene. yeah it's a cutscene yeah. and I was like well I just loved this game and now it's terrible I have like this bad feeling in my stomach and now I gotta wait because it didn't like <laughs> it did okay like it got too, positive right? reviews but it's it didn't like a, sell well it's like a TV show almost now or something yeah. I mean yeah. like yeah like the Absolutely. way the way we think about finishing a game is 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 you need that same sort of satisfaction or sense of completion right. and like obviously you participate a little bit more in it than you did with probably like watching a movie or a yeah, tv show or a play or something invested. it's it's interesting because i also think about like like the patrons and stuff of mm -hmm. like back in the day of of, of, of the, the traditional arts that we would think of you know if uh if the people that were spending the money didn't like what the artist was doing then that artist stopped yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. eating, you know? It, and yeah. so it's, it's, it's definitely the ways in which video games are functioning now are similar to the ways that other art forms are functioning that we're not necessarily always thinking about it as an art form. They're functioning in the ways in which there are gatekeepers who decide what's good and what's not. Yeah. And then I guess the schools of thought are the ones that say, like, use the power of, you know, online-ness and internet-ness and, you know, let the people decide or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're still voting with their dollars and all that kind of stuff, yeah. which is not necessarily, I mean, it's still a consumer choice. Uh, I don't know if, you know, video games are winning based on their beautifulness, but, I mean, that's certainly got to be part of what people are, are yeah, considering so. when they're when they're considering their options. You know, if they're saying, okay, I'm not going to get the second half of this game unless I fork over more money, are they going to factor into it, you know, story, narrative? Um, uh, how good the gameplay is, or what it looks yeah. like, or something like that. Did they care about uh, uh, making the universe, you know, as complete or total as possible, or something like right. that? Yeah. I don't know. That's yeah, that's like based on the reviewers you show me all the time. Though a lot of people care about that. I yeah, it's, but it it's, is very split. Right? It it's it's odd because I think gaming journalism is also different from what like just normal gamers think about things because mm. yeah. i think it's 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 odd because people look for different stuff in games kind of like movies but mm -hmm. yeah it's i was like, gonna say like a, a movie critic is always going to be looking for other things usually yeah. or at least like depends on what you're probably reading if you're reading the new yorker versus you right. know like your local paper or something local paper is reading is, is right saying should you spend your money on this yeah you know? it's very concrete yeah. Yeah. yeah because you know you could be in the middle of some you know destitute town somewhere and you base and you could say i only have so much money that i can spend on a certain thing so yeah. i'm gonna like trust the the person that i read to find out whether or yeah. not i should see this or something like that what i was thinking is uh, of it, it, when you compare it to films or something there are people out there who literally have to think within a lot of these constraints and yeah, stuff absolutely. they don't have the money for infinite gameplay they don't yeah. have you know the attention for it or the or the resources for it Who's making those games for those people? What are those games? Right. You know, the ones that, you know, that, I don't know. Like, you have to pick and choose yeah. what you're going to, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, like, the trade-offs and the sacrifices is, like, what ultimately leads to people. Because, like, they got to pull the resources somewhere. These game companies, yeah. they get told, you got a year to make this game. Mm -hmm. And they give them half of what they need to make it. So Yeah, and they make the people work, like... 50 hours yeah. a day. Yeah, it's yeah. very There's, there's massive exploitation yeah. among of, of workers that produce this stuff yeah. as well, yeah. from, from what I can understand. And the companies yeah. scrape it's, a lot off the top. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's... Depending on the company. Any game. horror stories you've heard of, like, bad, like, gaming companies like EA, or those those yeah, are all, EA like, really true. But, oh, yeah. yeah. And they don't pay the college players that they, uh, that they use the likenesses of. No, <laughs> no, that either. But all right. 
Go read Michael Costa's video game stuff. That's right. The Arts Fuse is where you can get your video game reviews in the Boston area. Absolutely. Bill's a missionary. Uh, <laughs> he is. Michael Costa has reviewed Rage 2, Time to Rage On. Uh, that's Bill's sub, uh, subtitle, <laughs> yes, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. And he also wrote about, uh, you know, Fear and Loathing at uh, PAX East. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much what it was, yeah. So check out his two pieces up there now, and uh, we hope to see more from you on the Arts Fuse as well. <laughs> What's a funny. water bear? But I don't remember. They're called things. tardigrades. They're like these oh, uh, microscopic animals that are like indestructible. They can live in space and stuff. So okay. Basically, all of the all of the pets meet horrible macabre endings. Except the tarantula ended up in the mop. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, so uh, we're talking to our guest Jacob Kramer. Uh, Jacob Kramer is a writer, community organizer, and activist, and he's based here locally in Somerville as well. So if you're in the Boston area and if you see him and you've heard about him on the podcast, then uh, you can thank the podcast for telling you about <laughs> him. Um, first of all, um, Jacob, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up in Boston uh, and how did you start writing children's books? Sure. I grew up in Providence. I went to college in Cambridge. And I stuck around here, basically. I moved to New York for a little bit, but I stuck around basically because I had friends here. And um, I guess the word we use for that now is community. So I had a community here. <laughs> it's true. And I stuck around. Um, and, you know, I've always enjoyed reading and writing. And I started sort of thinking about, you know, what medium was best for expressing the ideas I had. So when I was in college, I was making movies, and then I sort of switched to writing. Um, and then it was a question of, you know, what age group or, you know, what kind of form I wanted to use to express the ideas that I had. So yeah. I ended up, um, right now I'm making picture books um, because they're sort of an interesting form. And the books that you have written so far are... You first wrote uh, Looking Up, which is a celebration of telescopes. Yes. And then you wrote Critterverse, which is a collection of poems and drawings between uh, yourself and K-Fi Steel. K-Fi, yeah. K-Fi Steel. Uh, and then you wrote More Bats, which was a uh, perhaps, I guess, your first like real political children's book. Or or was also... Yeah, that that was... Um, it was actually my first book published as a book, so okay. oh, Looking nice. Up is, is not yet published. They'll come oh, out in okay. a couple of years. Oh, that's right. It's, it's um, 2020, I think, is what it is, right? Or, or it's been pushed back. But, um, okay. Well, publishing is a, publishing's a racket anyway. So. But yeah, More Bats um, it was published last summer with Jacobin Magazine as right. an insert to their issue about childhood. Right. And then cool. subsequent to that, my first sort of real book that you can buy in a, a bookstore came out, um, and that's called Noodlefint. Is published by Enchanted Lion Books, also illustrated by K. Fi Steel. I just want to sort of go back to your first two sort of things. I guess looking up, it's not published yet, but was that was you wrote that 
a long time ago or because um, on your website I, f I assume there was an order <laughs> there i did not organize it chronologically okay. <laughs> um, but looking up um i it's a collaboration with a german artist named steffi schultz who's a friend of mine and she loves telescopes and loves to draw them and so she was interested in the collaboration and she sort of got me interested in this idea and i did some research about them and we had this notion that you know there are these really interesting things that people um build together in this massive undertaking to build a giant telescope mm -hmm. and they're these extensions of our senses which we use to gather information that would otherwise be impossible um, to understand things about our universe which are completely unknowable without these amazing tools so we decided we were going to kind of celebrate them in this way and it turned into an exercise in, in how do you come up with interesting and engaging metaphors and imagery to kind of turn people on to this idea of telescopes as like a sensory extension mm -hmm. um, and sort of um, this grand project that we're doing to understand ourselves in the universe. When I think of any other book that has attempted to do something similar to that, the first one I think of is Gulliver's Travels. I don't know if you looked into uh, Gulliver's Travels at all when you were writing this book or thought about perhaps the uh, the ways in which he, uh, I forget exactly which island or chapter he's on, but it's basically when he's real small, when Gulliver's real small, and all the people around him are real big and you can see like all the pockmarks and like the ugliness of like human society or, or of, of life and, and biology. And it's uh, a critique of a certain philosophical school that was also being developed at the same time as the microscope, I believe, um, which changed our perception of reality in, 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 in such a way. Gulliver's Travels, you know, Swift is being very um, ironic and sort of uh, satirical about perception and you're also doing it in a slightly different way where you're saying this type of new perception actually enables us to do things like wonder and think about things that are, that are, that were, as you said, otherwise unknowable. Um, did you look at Gulliver's Travels at all when you were writing this? Or I did not. I hadn't thought about it. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because if I were to do a sequel to the Telescope book, it would be about microscopes. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And all of the, you know, because there's lots of different styles that have, you know, different properties that allow you to understand different things. Right. Um, and I was interested in a very sort of simple, concrete language in that project to try to boil down concepts such as like gathering light and reflection mm -hmm. and focusing um, into the simplest possible language so that it would be like both scientifically accurate and a little bit poetic. Yeah, I think realistic and poetic or, or scientific and poetic sort of brings me to my other sort of line of, of, of thought and question when I'm thinking about the stuff that you write, uh, particularly when it comes to more bats, which, as you mentioned, was an insert to the education issue of Jacobin magazine and how what it essentially does, I think, is like establish a sort of or not established, but it uses a poetics of revolution or revolutionary thought or insight to think about what is possible as opposed to just what's uh, realistic or something like that. So, you know, when you use a, a telescope or something, you're looking at something that is real, that is, you know, actual in, you know, in physical space. But at the same time, it's, it feels so disassociated from like the individual self that it's kind of hard to imagine it as part of your reality without augmenting the way in which you see it. 
a telescope often gives you the perception of seeing something that is either very, very far away or very some, or if we're actually just thinking about the physical properties of light, we're thinking about stuff that has happened a long time ago. Um, but in more bats, which is a story that uh, uh, the children take over and they basically say, all we want is more bats. Uh, it's an allegory of um, what we could be investing in, what we could be thinking about having more of to provide for more people, as opposed to things like investing in the military industrial complex or something like that. And so it, it's, it forces us to think about what's possible and then all of the non-scary ways at which people are able to work together to come up with solutions for future problems that might result, or not necessarily future problems, but future needs, future ways of collaborating. And, and to me, that seems like the essential kernel of that is a poetics of revolutionary thought. And do you approach your work like thinking in that way? Or is it mostly about, I want to tell a good story for kids that also like helps them be compassionate or think about others or not be afraid of the future or something like that. I mean, I think all of those things play into it with more bats that sort of, I, it came actually from a dream where I oh, just you awoke, go. you know, with this thought more bats or as it was actually more dogs. Okay. <laughs> and then in conversation, it became more bats. But the, the idea of the book is essentially it's this um, kind of a, a backdoor to the social democratic paradise that we all yeah, want to live in. Much, yeah. And the idea that it in it sort of critiques is that, like, you know, right now we're living in the wreckage of just prioritizing, you know, uh, accumulation of wealth for a very small number of people and um, imperialism and exploitation. And that's sort of the, this, the hidden driving factor between of where we are now, um, whereas having an explicit demand such as more bats. Um, which is as patently absurd as, you know, more concentration of wealth for the very few. It's a, they're both absolutely, yeah, absolutely. absurd demands. Yeah. Um, and seeing, you know, where one has brought us, where this other absurd demand could bring us yeah. um, to a place where we're building housing for everyone, and we're designating more parks, and we're providing health care for everyone. And each of those reforms um, in the book, there's an excuse that's based on bats for why we need healthcare. Everyone's worried about rabies, so of course we need to have healthcare for everybody. Um, and it's this kind of logic that I think is um, appealing to children um, because it's very mm -hmm. concrete, but it's also, I think, quite real. I guess if we took kids seriously is maybe one of the questions that we can ask ourselves and say, well, maybe they're not so ridiculous when they say, I want, you know, uh, a castle in the sky or something like that, you know, because they could be speaking metaphorically, but also right. very concretely, yeah. you know, and then it forces the people that are actually in charge of these kids lives to think, well, what could that possibly look like to this person, you know, and what could what could bats actually mean? Because it's not actually about bats, right? Because I have zero capacity for abstract thought. You know, it's like, I think that it is and it isn't. It's, yeah. it's like, if you were to seriously engage with the idea of maximizing bats. Mm. Like if it's you, not a bad thing to do, actually. Yeah, yeah, like you would encounter a lot of benefits, right? And you would encounter a lot of problems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you could, I mean, I think that that road would take us to a place where we would have a more just society. Right. Um because we would be have different land use, and we would, you know, be changing the way we use resources, and and hopefully we'd be providing, you know, education for people about the bats, right, <laughs> all right, kinds of things that we want. Education, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that it's sort of about 
yeah, don't be afraid to make demands um, and don't be afraid to follow through on what consequences those demands might have. Okay, and you can very, like kind of work it out, figure it out as you go, but it is possible to get started and then keep that ball rolling. Yeah, I, I yeah. like that metaphor, though, of the bats because it kind of, to me, it like beckons the purity of children and like that they would kind of make a crazy demand just like they want more bats but at the same time um i think when i looked on the jacobin website there was like a quote from the bible or something and it was like you you need to be more like children to get to heaven or some something along those lines and i thought that was interesting because i think there's a lot to a child's mind. And I'm curious, too, to hear more about how you decided on doing children's books as, like, the medium you were saying. You were kind of, like, trying to figure out what age group you wanted and where you wanted to start, like, focusing your career. Because I think it's, I think that, to me, it's, like, a great idea to go towards that age category because children are ultimately the future. There's definitely a lot of people we're finding now that are weirdly comfortable with all of the effects of the world that we're living in today that you mentioned before and they're all mostly the older people so I think that makes sense that I'd look more towards the youth yeah I think I mean one thing that is really gratifying about working on children's literature is that a lot of the a lot of the issues that um you know I care about as an adult have to do with you know basic ideas of fairness and justice And those ideas are extremely present for children. Right. Um, everything, you know, is it fair is the main question for right. children of a certain age. Right or wrong. Um, and what is right and what is wrong and, and what is, you know, just and how do you share. And all these yeah. things are just right in front of them. And so I think that it's, you know, not, it's an audience that's actually engaging with these ideas. Right. They could, they could <laughs> so, take it on into their own Yeah, so they're, it's... Um, it's fun to make different propositions to them, you know, in terms of in terms of allegory and um, you know, couching ideas in creative language and rhyme and stuff. Right. Um, so I and I also, I mean, I do think that it's you know, political education is you know something that's important. I think it's important to start early to get um, kids thinking about you know how does the world work and why does mm-hmm. it work the way mm-hmm. it works and how what would you do to change the way it works if you don't like that right yeah i think that's very important are you like a 21st century pete seeger but with oh. kids books <laughs> instead of songs about like abioyo and stuff i do love pete seeger um that, <laughs> i i can't take that mantle on just yet but i do love him um and in fact a book that I hope to be published um, by the same publisher. I'm talking with um, Enchanted Mind right now, but um, it's the main character is called Woody after Woody Guthrie. Sure. So it's that nice. tradition of, um, you know, the almanac, leftist songwriting. Yeah. And, um, that I, I am inspired by. His birthday was like a month ago, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Pete Seegers, that is. Um, I don't know how old he is. I now. He's dead now. He died. Oh. So, oh, so he's, he's not old at all, old <laughs> but yeah, he's but timeless. um, yeah, <laughs> he's timeless. Yeah, no, and 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 the stuff that he did. I mean, so I I, I guess I was lucky because I had a dad who used to play a tape of Pete Seeger kid songs. You know, when we were on long mm. car trips and stuff, and so I kind of uh, before knowing that I was getting political education. You know, I was getting political true, education yeah. Yeah. in in ways that have both um helped me and also fucked me up forever. <laughs> 
but at the same time, the two sides yeah, of political education, I think. <laughs> but, but as you say, going back to the, so another word for political education, I suppose, would be propaganda. And there's plenty of people out there that are probably going to think that, like, who is this crazy commie coming and yeah. trying to like teach that her kids about question, about, yeah. <laughs> about fairness? To me, to me, it's a bullshit question. Absolutely, but it's it a is. question that I wanted to ask anyway, just to sort of get I'm your sure view on it. Will ask that, because yeah. we get propaganda all the time. You know, all you have to do is watch the the Absolutely. film They Live, you know, where they put the glasses on and take them off. And you realize that your advertising, the way your society is structured, the way your workplace is structured, you know, uh, there's all sorts of ways in which we're propagandized, too. But it's not considered propaganda. It's just right. considered the way the world is. And well, so propaganda. The, what is it? The sports events that we were talking about on the last show with all the. The oh the, yeah, the the patriotism the and and the glorified yeah. militarism and stuff Absolutely. like that, where you know you you, you want to go watch a baseball game, but you can't go watch a baseball game without some sort of uh, homage to, uh, to to U.S. militarism. And so, like, yeah, I don't I don't Just hate propaganda I don't hate veterans, you know, and and I don't want them to have to go to war and sacrifice their lives for you know corporations to make money or something like Absolutely. that. But at the same time, it's not just about the veterans; it's using the veterans mm-hmm. to prop up, you know, a war machine. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're talking, uh, but so I wanted to ask you, do you, do you care about people who might think that you're propagandizing mm-hmm. to their kids from a crazy comic point, uh, left, uh, standpoint, uh, based on your, opinion? I mean, <laughs> I think that, or what is your response everyone, to that? I mean, I everyone seeks an audience, right? And they, right. They, these books have different, slightly different audiences. Obviously if I'm publishing with Jacobin, this is sort of like a tongue in cheek attempt at at a little bit of, you know, propaganda. What would right. that look right. like? You know, um, and but it's I think also it's, good policy. I mean, I think it's, yeah, I think it it's is. good policy. It it's quite is. sweet. Yeah. I mean, it's not communism. Uh, right. What we, no, we end right. up with social democracy at the end of more bats. Right. Yeah. Who knows where we go with more whales at the end? Yeah, um, I like that. But, that's a good teaser. But you just gave it. That's a spoiler. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now we gotta get more it's the whales. Next, it's the happens. next demand. Yeah. <laughs> but I. Yeah, I'm not too worried about that. And it's, you know, it's a conversation I'd be absolutely willing to have. Like, I mean, my my book that came out in February, Noodlefint, um, you know, it has some strong leftist ideals embedded in it. Sure. But the, the movements that it references and that what it calls back to are very mainstream, you know, liberal ideas like of you know like apartheid is wrong and segregation is wrong and that the laws should be the same for everybody regardless of how much money you have or what you look like Mm -hmm. so those ideas about like basic fairness in the criminal justice system are not Mm -hmm. like wild-eyed um you know leftist ideas um you know that said you know it's a story that i tell about um this elephant who lives in a town that's run by kangaroos and they make all the laws so that's the the apartheid system i mentioned but you know she ends up in the zoo um and it's very serious and it's like you know the stakes are high she's in solitary confinement in the zoo and so you know when i knew that was the story i was going to tell and i was seriously engaging with a real idea that is in the world like you know i i spoke with the publisher and k5 and we agreed that we should you know use the book to make a contribution to a uh, prison abolitionist group. Black oh, and Pink, nice. right? Yeah, Black, Black and Pink. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, what does Black and Pink do? Black and Pink is um, a group that is sort of at its core. It's a prison abolitionist organization, but what they do is they um, support LGBTQ prisoners, um, incarcerated people, 
and we'll do that through a number of means. Um, one of the most interesting ones is a pen pal system where you can just sign up and you know start a pen pal relationship with someone who's incarcerated. And um, that's something that I did, and you can like send holiday cards and stuff. And um, it's an organization that really kind of tries to build bridges between people on the inside and the outside and make that connection of humanizing people who are consistently and um, very violently dehumanized. Um, so I think they're a wonderful organization, and I'm very proud that we can support them. And so that, you know, I think that is something about the book that, you know, we talk about with people and we try to get them to, to push their ideas of what is fair and what does justice look like. Um, though in the story, I mean, she does, she gets, she breaks out of the zoo, spoiler. Right, right. Um, yeah. But it's, it's not, um, it, I'd say it's like a pretty classic kind of story of, of claiming civil rights. On your, on your website, you have a link to a, 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 a document that actually says that you and um, the person you wrote it with or, or made it with came up with it during uh, the summer of 2016 when social movements against police brutality and massive inequality uh, were growing more visible and urgent. Is there anything right now that you're writing, perhaps Noodlefins, you know, part two, um, that you're responding to in, in a similar way or that you're directly, you know, engaging with like uh, police brutality or criminal justice reform? Or is it just a continuation of the same ideas that you've been working with as a writer over these past few years? So I could say, um, I mean, I did mention the sequel, so I'll talk about it. Um, it's called O Copy Tale, which is the, uh, the play on... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's about what happens when an Okapi, who's an Okapitalist, uh, comes <laughs> to the town of Beeston. Um, and it's kind of based, um, you know, on my experience here in Somerville, community organizing and um, sort of learning more about how so much of what's in the private sector, um, so much of what is considered profitable is just captured from the public sector and yeah. basically a looting of public goods. Yeah. And so in the story, there's there's a magical pos pasta machine that Noodleflint and her friends invent that can turn anything into pasta. Right. And um, the question in my mind when I wrote Noodleflint is like, what does this really represent? You know, And sort of I answered that by thinking, you know, it, it represents what is possible when people work together and they work together and they bring together what resources they have to build something that, um, you know, maybe the abstract notion of that is a, a social movement, but the concrete notion is this machine that just turns things into right. other things. And, but it's also a metaphor for an economy or, you know, something that is transformative. And so this machine, um, which is a public machine that anyone can use in the beginning of the sequel, um, is then bought um, and privatized uh -huh. by this Okapi. And so that is based on my local experience here, seeing actually just across the street, you know, this public lot, this public land mm -hmm. um, in Union Square that, you know, uh, it was it was privately held and it was turned public. And then it was given over at a very low price to a private developer to do what they wanted with very little oversight and very little community input um, and very little direct benefit to the people who live here who sort of made the square what it is. Right. And um, you see it with you know, school privatizations and any kind of thing. Where, um, like our post office building that's next door that was built by the federal government is now a private building. <laughs> and all of this stuff is just like sort of right in our faces. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it would be interesting to try to allegorize that. Mm -hmm. um, 
our children. Yeah, I wonder, is that challenging to kind of take these, like, complex ideas and sort of parse them down for a child's view, or does it kind of just come naturally, or...? I think that is the fun part of the challenge. Okay. Um, and I know that, you know, many people work, there's lots of different ways to come up with an idea and right. to to start a story and find it, find out what piece of it interests you. One way that I like to do it is to think of something that is bothering me mm-hmm. and then think of how I might try to make it abstract and interesting and, you know, change elements of it around. Other people, um, you know, start from characters, or they start from right. images, or they, you know, they, there's lots of different ways, um, and that's one way I found to be generative. So you think of story writing as a way of problem solving, almost, or I think it's I think of it as a way of like, how would I speak clearly about this thing that I care about, mm-hmm. and that that's another thing that's kind of gratifying about writing for children is you must speak clearly, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then yeah, what do I find funny, and you know, that sort of thing. Right. So, Jacob, thank you very much for being with us. We're now going to have you read from your from your book, Noodlefint. Thank you. So this is Noodlefint, Jacob Kramer. It's illustrated by K5 Steel, so you'll, you'll just have to imagine the illustration. Once there was an elephant who loved noodles. She loved noodles so much that all of her friends called her Noodlefint. She loved to scoop noodles in huge slippery slurps and eat them by the trunk load. She had neighbors of all sorts. Some had fur, some were smooth. Some could roll and some could fly, and some had deep pockets and were very, very bossy. Those were the kangaroos. The kangaroos were always making new laws. They made laws about who could swim at the beach, only kangaroos, who could enjoy the butterfly garden, only kangaroos, and who could make laws, only kangaroos. Noodlefint and her friends knew the laws weren't fair, but they didn't want to get thrown in the zoo. So instead of swimming at the beach, they cooled off in the sprinkler. Instead of visiting the butterfly garden, they watched moths dance in lamplight. Instead of making laws, they made food for each other. All right, that was Jacob Kramer reading from his book Noodlefint. Uh, you can check out all of Jacob Kramer's stuff at jacobkramer.com. That's, Jacob A. Kramer. Sorry, J- Jacob A. Kramer.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-A-K-R-A-M-E-R.com. Uh, he's written Looking Up, which is forthcoming, Critterverse, Collection of Poems, More Bats, which was an inset in uh, Jacobin Magazine, uh, and also what he just read from, which was Noodlefint. Uh, check out all of his stuff and buy his books. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. If you want to support the show and if you want to support the Arts Fuse, first of all, thank you to all of those who did yes. contribute during this, uh, the Spring Appeal. It was like 9000 Did that, Is that how much we made? I think so. I actually don't have the numbers in front of me. Bill put it in a letter from the editor. Oh, it's in our newsletter? I think he, it was an article he just put. I can try to oh, okay. find it. Sure. But I, be- I believe it was 9000 because he was overjoyed that he hit his goal of over 5,000 from last year's, I believe. Well, get your uh, get your Saiyan scatters on, everybody, because it's over 9,000. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was waiting for the... <laughs> <laughs> 
God bless all of you who got that joke. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you very much for those who per, uh, contributed during the Spring Appeal. We really appreciate it. It helps pay our writers. helps uh, keep the magazine going so we can send people out, cover stuff, get books, uh, go see the shows. You know, we, we, all, we help support the arts by doing what we do, but we also try to hold the arts accountable and we're accountable to the people who give us the money to help us do what we do as well. So we really appreciate that. Uh, if you want to support the show specifically, please go to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash theartsfuse. Uh, and that helps us make the show better. Um, and maybe one day we'll release them more frequently and <laughs> on an actual schedule. That's true. That's a good idea. Uh, if, we, if we have more money, then, you know, maybe I can quit my job. <laughs> <laughs> the true dream right. is to start touring it around. But already. Uh, thanks again to Michael Costa for being here. Uh, Deanna Costa as well for being the co-host. And I'm Luke Spiro, and we'll see you next time.